encourage you ladies that are free to come and be a part of that time as you guys just stand in the gap, as you pray and ask God to do the impossible in those that you, in the hearts of those that you love and those that you care for in different situations that you might be going through. So encourage you ladies to be here at 9. It's a one-hour thing. It's not going to be like all day, 9 to 10 here in this place. So we hope to see a bunch of you ladies out for that. All right, Pastor Ron just has something to share with you guys this morning as well. All right, everybody say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, it works. My son does it, and I'm going to do it, too. It works. White wakes everybody up. So, uh, Doug, if you just kind of stay up here, maybe grab a microphone if you'd like. Um, I want to share uh, with you a, a vision uh, for uh, September 2014. So that's a year from now. Okay, uh, we've been uh, talking about planning uh, this for a number of years, Duggan and myself. Uh, a few months ago, uh, the elders and the staff met and we shared to cast a vision, and I believe that we're all on the same page, uh, and uh, I wanted to share that with you. For the last 34 years, uh, I have been the lead pastor of uh, the Living Word, and uh, for a lot of those years, I've been the only pastor of uh, the Living Word. Back in uh, October of 2001, uh, we're coming up on an anniversary right next month, a couple of weeks from now, right? Uh, we, uh, we hired Doug uh, as an associate pastor, and uh, Doug has done an outstanding job in that role. Obviously, his... his uh, Gifts and his abilities. Uh, I mean, D Doug is a visionary and innovator. Uh, he has uh, it's been a blessing to 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 this church. He's he's helped it rise to the to the higher level that uh, the church is at uh, currently. Uh, I've been blessed, you know, to to work with Doug not as my colleague but as my son-in-law. <laughs> But he's, he's been, a, he's been a, a son to me, and, and uh, uh, I, I just want to say this, that uh, most importantly, uh, Doug is, is going to be my successor uh, in 2014. We're, we're announcing that now we're casting the vision, now that, you know, I'm not retiring, uh, I'm not going to Boca Vista, <laughs> I promise you. Uh, what I'm simply doing is, in 2014, so, so it's a, almost a year from now, uh, I'm going to step into another role. As Doug steps into the role of lead pastor, I'm going to step into the role of executive pastor. And what, what that means, I'm basically be doing a lot of the things that I already do uh, for the church in terms of its administration. And I'll continue to, to, to do that. We've, we've come up with a preaching schedule uh, that will go into and stretch over the next number of years, and so I, I will be I will be speaking. But but even even more importantly, uh, is that we're talking about and praying about uh, starting new uh, areas of ministry within the church that uh, I could uh, certainly uh, oversee and be involved in. And so I'm excited about that. And so so we wanted to share this with you that that this is coming up. Uh, before we know it, it'll be here September 14th, uh, or, or September 2014th, uh, is, uh, is the, the target date for this trans, uh, transition. And so I'm excited about it. I'm excited about what God is going to continue to do uh, in the future by pouring out his favor upon 
uh, this house. And so I'm just blessed, and, and I wanted to share that with you. And Doug, if you have anything that you'd like to say, please, you know, feel free to. Yeah, no, I'm just share really that. excited, really blessed, really honored, humbled, um, grateful, thankful, and um, just praying that God will continue to use us as a team and our staff together. We're so excited to just see what God's going to do continually. And um, I'm thankful, like, if you're going, oh, no, Doug, Doug always has crazy ideas, what's going to happen? Um, like, Pastor has done a, such a great job over the years of, you know, with our staff leading forward into new territory and, and, and bringing about awesome ideas and change and, and vision. So, you know, we're just going to keep on marching forward with where God has been leading us. It's not going to be like this completely different church, which is so exciting because really we already have one vision. And so... The vision is just going to keep on rolling forward, and we're just believing that God will uh, just change a bunch of lives on Long Island and continue to reach the lost and continue to reach you guys who want to grow deeper in your faith. So we're just really grateful, excited. I'm, I'm so blessed to uh, have Pastor um, just willing to do this and willing to, you know, allow God to continue to use us both just in a little bit of a different seat. So we're really, really, really excited. I just saw Brianna Yorn, so I'm sorry if we bored you, Brianna. Oh, she went like that. Oh, you know. <laughs> uh, the Lord is good. So uh, with that, let's go into the conclusion of our, our series this morning on the, the price of freedom. Honey, I love you. You're the best wife I've ever had. We just celebrated uh, 43 years uh, last week. And uh, we're, you know, it, it's a cliche, but we are more in love today than we were when we first married. So let's just pray. Father, we ask your uh, blessing and anointing upon the word of the Lord this morning as you would speak to us and, and cause us to just really come into oneness with the Word of God this morning, as the Word of God is so powerful to transform lives. And this is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our focus in this series, The Price of Freedom, over the last uh, five weeks uh, has been to look at the freedoms that have been uh, given to us in Christ, the freedoms that we have as our inheritance in Christ, what Jesus has purchased for us. And so we've talked about uh, Freedom from fear, that we don't have to live in fear. We've talked about freedom from the power of sin, that we're no longer under law, but we're under grace, that, that sin shall no longer have dominion over us, that, that we've been set free from guilt and condemnation. Thank God. There, I mean, listen, if God doesn't do anything else for us for eternity, to, to just simply be appreciative of having no condemnation over our life, not now, not ever, is an amazing blessing, right? But he's done so much more for us, and we've been set free from, from legalism and the striving after legalism as a means of attempting to appease God or to, or to win God's acceptance. And last week we talked about, I think maybe if you missed the message, you really need to listen to it on the podcast. It's really the ultimate setting free not only of us individually as the sons of God, but as creation itself is being brought into the liberty of the, of, of, of the children of God. All creation is being set free from the futility of the decay and the corruption of, of a universe that is, that is 
well, th- that is falling apart. And, and the reason for it is because Jesus has paid the price. So, so on God's uh, to-do list is a new heaven and a new earth. And so that we said that all of the, the present sufferings of this age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. In fact, what we said was that, that even the pain and the sorrow that we've experienced in this life, God is using as a, an exceeding greater weight for us to experience the glory of, of the world which is to come. And so, and so this is amazing. This morning, however, I don't want to talk about what he has purchased uh, for our freedom, but rather I want to talk about the price itself. I thought it would be a great way to conclude this message by series by just talking about the infinite price itself. We, we were bought not with silver gold, not with perishable things where we redeemed, but with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. I, I told the staff, <clears throat> excuse me, on Wednesday, the story that I read that uh, a group of believers were going to vacation in uh, England uh, back at around the turn of the century. And they were excited to go visit two of the most famous preachers in London at the time. And in the morning service, they, they, they were so blessed and so, and so thrilled by, by uh, the service. When they, when they spoke about it afterwards, they said, what an amazing sermon that was. In fact, some of them wanted to go back that night to hear this eloquent preacher once again, but they remembered that they had promised that they would visit this church where this pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon was preaching, and so they, they went to that service, and when they came out of that service, they said, what an amazing Savior we have. I, th- I think our staff is all on the same page. We want to extol Jesus. We want to make much of him because the song that we sang a little while ago, it really is all about him. It really is all about Jesus. It's not about us individual personalities, but it's about <clears throat> the greatness of the Savior we have. In the pages of the book of Exodus, Moses tells a story about how the children of Israel crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. And, and, and now they're in the wilderness. And, and now the wilderness is described as a howling wasteland. I mean, it, it was harsh and hostile. Without water, th- th- they would soon die. And, and so they needed that hydration. And so they came upon a pool of water, and their hopes were now dashed because the water was brackish and it was... It was bitter to the point where they, it was undrinkable. And so they did what the people normally did. They murmured and they complained. And Moses did what he normally did was he went to God to look to God for help. And God did what he normally does, and that is to save the day. And he showed Moses a tree and said, when you cast that tree into the waters, the waters will be healed. And so Moses took this tree and cast it into the water. And the waters, the Bible says, were made sweet. Now, the Holy Spirit has given that picture to us of what the cross does for our lives. He takes the bitter, he takes the the brackish, parts of our life, and he turns it, and he heals it. 
he takes the cross and he uses the power of the cross to transform our lives into what is sweet. Peter says and uses and probably has th this very picture in mind when, when, he, when he quotes this. Second Peter, I'm oh, sorry, First Peter 2.24 says, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, he says, we have been healed. Peter calls the cross the tree because there is an Old Testament scripture that says, Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. Jesus bore the curse for us by being hung on, suspended on what Peter calls was the tree. He bore the curse for us. But by bearing the curse for us, he says, we're healed. By his wounds, literally by his bleeding stripes, Isaiah prophesied we would be healed. And so the tree cast into the toxic pool of our sinfulness turns turns even our, our sinfulness. Come, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be as red as crimson, they shall be as white as wool. The miracle power of the cross is so amazing. And I think it's important for us to remember that whenever we talk about the cross, we, we, we view the cross through the empty tomb. We, we see the cross through the victory that Jesus has won. But for those in the first century, for the disciples who saw Jesus crucified, that was a great leap of faith for them to be able to comprehend that God, God was taking the most disgraceful, the most shameful method of execution, and God was using that as a means by which he would save lost sinners. To the Greeks, the cross was, was idiotic. It was, it was foolish. It was moronic. It was... It was absurd. The, the Greeks who prized philosophy and, and wisdom and knowledge looked at the cross. I mean, th th there was probably n nothing greater of a scandal in that first century than the message of the cross. To the Jewish people, the phrase Messiah crucified was an oxymoron, was a contradiction of terms. It was a stumbling block to the Jew and a rock of, of offense. But to us that are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. In 1962, a freighter with more than 6,000 sheep capsized and sunk in the Kuwait harbor. Now, that posed a real problem because that many rotting carcasses would probably pollute, would probably contaminate not, not only the harbor itself, but ultimately the drinking water of the Kuwaiti people. So the government knew they had to do something. We've got to come up with some kind of solution to solve the problem. Now, happened to be working in Kuwait at the time was a, a Danish engineer who came up with, a, with an idea, a proposal that was absolutely absurd. The, the, those that heard it ridiculed him and, and la literally laughed at him. See, what he had remembered was a cartoon in which, maybe some of you saw it, Donald Duck and his nephews. <laughs> I mean, just think of that. Donald Duck and his nephews were able to lift a sunken rowboat 
with ping pong balls. And so he proposed that they would attempt to lift this freighter that had sunk with more than 6,000 sheep in it to lift this up by shooting ping pong balls into the hull of the ship. And in fact, they used 27 million ping pong balls. I wish I brought some. I was going to throw them out to the congregation. How absurd is this? Ping pong balls. But you know what? As absurd as it was, it worked. And it saved the day. Just as absurd in that first century was the idea that someone dying on a cross could pay the price for our ultimate, not only redemption now that we've experienced so many of the freedoms now, but being delivered from eternal destruction. Looking to the engineering skill of a cartoon character sounds absolutely ludicrous. But in the first century, so did looking to the cross seem absolutely ludicrous. But to us that are saved, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. This morning, I want to just look at the price. And, and of course, there's so much that could be said, but I want to narrow the focus to a couple of areas this morning of the price that was paid for our salvation. And the passion of the Christ, if you've seen the movie, I think Gibson gets it right when he starts the film with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. The scene is very dark. There's, there's moonlit night, but the, the moonlit night is kind of, kind of concealed because of the mist that was in the garden that night. Jesus is, is praying. He's praying fervently, and there's a figure in the shadow with a, with a hood on, and he's making suggestions to Jesus while he's praying. And he's saying, in essence, the cost is too much. It's too heavy a load for any one person to be able to bear. And as a result of that, Jesus is praying through, and he's praying more fervently. You know... There's something, there's something dynamic. There's something mysterious. There's something of a mystery regarding Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is where Jesus first began to spill his blood. And Gethsemane is, is the place where, where Jesus first began to pay the ultimate price for our redemption. Uh, not that when we, we calculate the cost, when, when we try to wrap our minds around what it costs God. I mean, we've, we've got to add into that the, the, the incarnation when God became a man. I mean, there's nothing to compare it to, that the limitless one became limited, that the infinite one became finite, finite and, and committed to a physical time and space in a human body, becoming one with us in nature. We have to calculate the cost of his incarnation. When we talk about the incarnation, I mean, it is awe-inspiring. I mean, there's, like I said, there's nothing to compare it to. It is a, it is a mystery that, that, that causes us to, to just wonder because who can wrap your mind around the two natures of, of the one person that we know as Jesus? Fully God, fully man. 
I mean, it is, it is an amazing truth that we have come to embrace. God sending his son, being poured into our humanity, and as a result of that, as a result of that, he is obedient to a covenant of works, and he's obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And in that process, he defeats sin, Satan, and death itself. Even now, the Son of Man sits at the right hand of majesty on high. Kelly was talking about that last night. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is applying, he's applying his sacrifice on behalf of those that believe in him and those that will believe upon him. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing is, is that the mediator of this new and greater covenant based upon better promises is forever the God-man. That when we look at him in eternity... His scars will forever be a reminder of the cost of our freedom. It will be a reminder of the extent of his love for us that was poured out for us. Gethsemane. Jesus, in order to get to Galgotha, had to go through Gethsemane. Now, I, I, believe, I believe that, you know, just as in battle, the, the, the battles aren't won on the battlefield. They're actually won in the planning stages. And so before the foundation of the world, Christ was ordained and set to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And I believe with my, all my heart that the battle that was being fought here in Gethsemane re really determined the outcome, really determined the war that, that Jesus had ultimately won. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, May we not conceive that as in the garden Adam's self-indulgence ruined us, so in another garden the agonies of the last Adam should restore us. The actions of the first Adam ruined us. I mean, do you, do you realize the significance of that? The sorrow, the pain, the suffering that has come because of the self-indulgence, the selfishness of Adam. But because of the selflessness of the last Adam, he has restored us. And then Spurgeon said this, Gethsemane supplies the medicine that we need. Oh, I, I believe that. That where he shed great drops of blood, where he sweat those drops of blood, is the beginning of the healing process that by his bleeding stripes we are healed. I've always been fascinated by the story of Gethsemane. Whenever I've, whenever I've studied the scriptures about Gethsemane and I've looked at them, I've always seen something more than the last time, but I always walk away with the feeling like I've not even scratched the surface and there's much more here that I don't understand than I do understand. And, and there's that mystery about Gethsemane where the precious blood of Jesus first began to be spilled. If there's any place on planet Earth that can be called holy ground, then it has to be Gethsemane. Gethsemane is, is for me, the holy place where, where I take my shoes off. It's the battlefield, the garden, which was so tranquil and so peaceful and so restful for Jesus, where he came so many times and where he resorted to prayer and communed with his heavenly Father. Now, the of all places, the garden becomes the battlefield. What, what a contrast. What a contrast between the, the, the Jesus who, 
who expelled demons, who stilled storms, who confounded his enemies with his wisdom and, and sent them away with their tail between their legs because they couldn't, they couldn't re, re, rebuke his wisdom, is now in a state of being traumatized. He's in a state of confusion. He's in a state of perplexity. He, he, he is sweating drops of blood. The agony of Gethsemane is so severe that many believe that he thought he was not going to make it out of Gethsemane, that the conflict that was taking place between him and the powers of hell was so severe that he would prematurely die. That was Spurgeon's opinion. So let's look at verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus first began to spill his blood. Then Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, Peter, Peter, James, and John, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then in Luke 22, Luke tells us this, that an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly as his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. What Jesus was experiencing mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually is hard for us to imagine. But it was so severe, so traumatic, so so traumatizing to him in every way, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, that he began to sweat drops of blood. He, 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 he was, the, the, the word that is used in the Greek expresses confusion and perplexity and derangement that Jesus had become so oppressed by what was taking place here in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was, he was at this point of shuddering in horror as to what was happening to him. Jesus was gripped to the point where he wasn't just on his knees, but he was on his face to the ground. Have you ever been there? Have you ever gotten so low that there's, there's no place lower to go than the ground? And that's where Jesus was. And he's praying. I mean, think about it. The heavenly father was so moved by the weakness of his son that he sends an angel to strengthen him. Now, I don't know if, does that sound weird to you? Does that not sound hard to grasp that the Lord of glory, the, the one who, who upholds all things by the power of his word, still, even at that moment, he never ceased to be God, he who made all things and all things were made by him and for him, at that moment of utter weakness, he needed one of his own created beings to come and to strengthen him. Now, now if that doesn't sound foreign 
to your ears, then, then I don't know whatever will. Having said that, I know this, that it's hard for us to fully comprehend and fully understand. But as I mentioned, Charles Spurgeon believed that what Jesus was praying for was that he would not perish prematurely. In fact, the Living Bible translates Hebrews 5, 7 as, as praying that Jesus might be delivered from premature death while he, his voice was lifting up strong cries unto the one who could save him. Others are, are believing, and, and, and along with that, let me just say this, that, that, that he may not have been asking to be spared the cross, but rather that he just would not expire there right then and there in the garden. And, and that is a strong possibility because of the severe agony that he was experiencing. Others hold to the opinion that what Jesus was praying for was that his, that his suffering would not be eternal, that his, that, 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 that his eternal suffering would not be prolonged, but that he would be raised from the dead just as the covenant, the blood of the everlasting covenant agreement between the Father and the Son was, was enacted so many, well, before time began. This is what Sam Storms writes about this subject. He says, this was no mere physical death. It was divine, eternal judgment. And that for something he did not do. Put yourself in, in the place. Have you ever been punished for something you didn't do? And boy, does that hurt much more than, than, than if we would deserve it. He says, with the prospect of enduring the righteous wrath of an infinitely holy God, that alone can account for the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane. Just, just another opinion. What the angel may have said to Jesus, what the angel, how he may have strengthened Jesus, is just absolute conjecture. It's, it's, it's a matter of opinion. Maybe, maybe just the angel's presence. Maybe just seeing one of his own created beings. Just, just refocused him. Cleared up the confusion. Maybe just seeing an angel just, just helped him and, and strengthened him. Angels have ministered to, to, to God's children in various ways throughout Scripture and, and, and throughout time. Maybe the angel had a personal message because angels are messengers. Maybe he had a message from the Father spoken specifically for Jesus. I don't know what it is, but I know this, that Jesus was praying fervently. Jesus was praying persistently. He prayed through until he got an answer. But most, of, most importantly, Jesus, his prayer was a prayer of resignation. Not my will, but your will be done. D.A. Carson says this about that. He says, in the first garden, not your will, but mine changed paradise into a desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will, but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Gethsemane brings us to the gates of glory. I love that thought. I, I know this, that it is, it is the medicine that brings healing to us. In Gibson's opening scene, where Jesus is in the garden, after he had finished praying, there was a serpent that had 
been by Jesus and he stomps on that and crushes the head of the serpent. The, the, the symbolic of Genesis 3.15 where God's first prophecy was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Your, his heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. And from that moment on, in the rest of the film and in the rest of the story and the rest of Scripture, Jesus is no longer confused. He, he's no longer traumatized. He, he's no longer deranged mentally, emotionally, physically. He, he's once again totally in control. He... He's being questioned by Herod, but the Bible says that he answered not a word. He fulfills what Isaiah said, that as a lamb led to the slaughter, so he would not even open up his mouth. Before the Sanhedrin, he did not defend himself. And the only time that Jesus spoke is when, is when the high priest adjured him under an oath, swear to us, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus said, I am, and you will not see me again until you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And that's not talking about his second coming. That's talking about judgment that was coming upon the nation in 70 AD. It's a symbol of, of judgment that was recorded not only in Daniel, but also in the book of Ezekiel. The following article appeared in foxnews.com on March 1st, 2013. And the headlines captured my attention and it read this hellhole torture mutilation murder at the world's worst prison and it's referring to a prison i might get the pronunciation wrong it's la, 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 la sabaneta prison in venezuela hugo chavez called it the fifth circle of hell in this prison that was built for 15,000 inmates, more than 30,000 inmates reside there. there. There are gangs that run around with machetes and guns in the prison. You are likely to be tortured either by the prison guards or by the other prisoners. There are gangs that, that exercise protection for, for hire, in other words, you, you pay them to be protected. In fact, you, you, you pay if you want a place to sleep. You pay if you want food. And, 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 and you, might be, you, you might be raped. You might be killed in this place. And so there, there's a code among some of them who are called the unwanted ones. And, and what that longstanding code said, that if you... If a prisoner sewed his lips together, he could not be touched. He could not be killed. And so men would literally take a needle and thread and sew their lips together, and they would be on the hierarchy or the lowerarchy of the prison population. They would be known as the unwanted ones. Jesus was known as the one who was despised and rejected, he became the unwanted one. He was taken from prison, abused while in prison. Isaiah said, he's despised and rejected of men and men of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus, literally, in that sense, 
refused to speak on his own behalf. Let's look at Matthew 27. It says in verse 21, this is the scene now before Pilate. After he's been examined, Pilate now wanting to release Barabbas, but the crowd, as you'll see, Pilate says, which of the two do you want me to release? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they, they, they answered. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Messiah or Christ? Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of the blood of this man. It's your responsibility. The people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released to them Barabbas. But he had Jesus scourged and handed him over to be crucified. He had Jesus scourged. Scourging was horrific punishment. If you've seen the, 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 the Passion of the Christ, it, it was an excellent exhibition of what really happened to Jesus. A cat of nine tails, an instrument with leather straps, bone and metal fragments, sharp metal fragments, made kind of a chain out of it. And the Romans didn't have any rule or law about how many stri strikes or strokes uh, a, a victim or a prisoner can receive not like the Jews. The Jews said 39, no more than 39. They would be tied to a pillar or a post, sometimes just thrown to the ground and beaten by multiple soldiers. The possibility was great that the person being scourged would die from the scourging. You, you've heard of Josephus, an historian. Josephus had had some of his opponents scourged when he was in Galilee, and he reports that their insides were exposed. Bones are exposed through the process. Isaiah 60, or rather Psalm 69 speaks about furrows being dug into the back of Jesus. His, his beard was plucked from his face. Some of the suggestions are that that what Pilate was, was actually doing by ordering Jesus to be scourged was, was kind of like an act of mercy because he hoped that the Jews would see how badly he was treated and, and, and just kind of let him, let him off the hook as far as being crucified. Others hoped or believed rather that Pilate was hoping that, that Jesus would expire by, by, the, by the scourging and that he would be spared the crucifixion. More, more, more than likely, it was just, just the cruel, senseless, heartless act of, of, a, of a ruler who is absolutely unconcerned. Matthew 27, 27 says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers, gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him. He's stripped naked. And, he's, and they put a robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. 
And they put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt down on the ground before him, and they mocked him. Hell, king of the Jews. They spit on him. And they took a staff, and with that staff, they struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, and they put his clothes back on, and they led him away to be crucified. This act of of humiliation, of, of mockery, of making a character out of Jesus, of, of arraying him as a king. This is their opinion of what, of what a king of the Jews should look like. And they knelt before him. And, and literally, the, the, the Greek says that they spit on him and they kept on spitting on him. I mean, that's unimaginable. All the while that he was still the Lord of glory, all the while... Well, he could have just simply looked at them and they would have disintegrated if he, if he spoke one word from his silent lips. All of Jerusalem could have been reduced to rubble. But he didn't say anything and he didn't do anything. And the reason is because of love for us. And that's what's so amazing about this. That this is part of the price that he paid for our freedom. This is the medicine that we needed. This is the, this is the life that was cast into the, the pollution of our sin that makes us sweet. The abuse that Jesus received was profound. On August 16th, 1987, about 26 years ago, maybe a little bit more than 26 years ago, a Northwest airline was taking off from a city in Detroit and crashed, killing 155 people. And what was so amazing was not, not only the horrific scene of the crash, but the fact that, that there was one lone survivor, a four-year-old little girl, the first responders that arrived on the scene thought this little child that's wandering around must have been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway where this plane kind of crashed. But as it turns out, as amazing as it sounds, she was the lone survivor in this plane crash. And so the question became, how, how could that possibly be? Was she sitting in the right chair? Was it her size that, that enabled her to, to evade the destiny of everybody else that was killed aboard that plane? And they had all of these questions. And, and, and yet she was, she was young, but she was old enough to tell her story. And the story really is quite amazing. That when the plane was going down, her mother unstrapped her own seatbelt and knelt in front of her daughter and put her arms and her entire body around her child and would not let go. She bore the the, the brunt of the impact, and and I, I suppose you'd say it would have to be a miracle took place. That that mother selflessly gave herself for the sake of her child. I, I Listen, I, there are probably plenty of mothers you would do the same. I know I, I would do the same if I, if I could for the saving of my children or my grandchildren. 
Now, that was 26 years ago. That four-year-old is now a 30-year-old woman. And, 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 and one of the things that's for certain is that she, she has not had the presence of her mother all of these years. She, she, the, her mother wasn't there when, when she boarded the school bus on the first day of school. That's a big thing for a mother. Kelly tweeted a, a picture of Landon his first day at school. It's a big thing for a mother. My little baby. And, and, and yet there was no mother there for her. There was no mother there for her when she graduated high school. There was no mother there for her to counsel her when she was a teenager and, and went through those difficult years. There was no mother there to, to weep tears of joy when her daughter walked down the aisle as a bride. But one thing is for sure. That not one day, not one moment could ever go by when that daughter would ever wonder about the love of her mother. That one selfless act of love and sacrifice was proof enough for a lifetime and, and causes, listen, it, 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 causes, it causes time and space to be irrelevant when there's that kind of love and when you're assured of there's that kind of love. I want to tell you something. That my awesome Savior, Jesus, unbuckled the seatbelt, left his throne in heaven, knelt in front of us, wrapped his arms around us, and wouldn't let us go to save us from eternal destruction. With that kind of love, there may be times in our life when, when, when we, we feel that God is absent. But that's when we need to remember the cross. We need to remember the price that was paid for our redemption, for our freedom. By dying on the tree, Jesus offered his own body to shield us from more than a plane crash, from eternal, eternal death. And I can't even begin to tell you what that must look like. Here's our bottom line this morning. Jesus paid it all, the ultimate price for our freedom. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If you're here this morning, and it feels like at times, you know, God's an absentee God, remember the cross. Remember the price. The undeniable act of love stands firm like a rock. It's immovable. It's absolute. In the face of such love, time and distance becomes irrelevant. I just want to pray. If you're here this morning and you've never, 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 never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, can I, can I invite you to allow Jesus to kneel by you and wrap his arms around you and save you from eternal death. 
So let's pray. So Father, I pray that you'd search the house today, Lord God, that you would look and see if there's any here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't received you today, that they will be drawn into the love of God that is in Christ. And Jesus, that you'd, you who poured yourself out for us, you unbuckled the seatbelt and you came and you stood in our place. You, you bore our sin and our sorrow in your own body upon the tree. Would you, would you search the house today and seek and save that which is lost? Because that's what you came to do. You, you, you're the Savior. We're only messengers that relate the story. And if you're here this morning and you would like to, to, do, to do that, it's not, not something magical, mystical. It's, it's a prayer of faith that says, Jesus, come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Be my Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. If you would just simply say that right now, Jesus will come in. And he will, he will make his presence known to you. He is the medicine that we need. His blood was shed to set us free. So Lord, I thank you today, Lord God, that your encouragement lifts us up. Your love, indeed, is the medicine that we need this morning. That no matter what we're going through, no matter what difficulty we find ourselves in, because we're constantly going in and out of stuff, that, that knowing this, causes me to be unshakable and unmovable, always abounding in the love of God. And we all sit together, amen, amen. Jim.